I have the distinct pleasure of introducing Heather Chaplin to you as the uh, colloquium speaker tonight. Um, Heather is a noted journalist whose work has been featured in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, on All Things Considered, and my favorite, Gentleman's Quarterly. Um, I first became really familiar with Heather when in 2009 at the Game Developers Conference she delivered what has become an infamous speech in which she introduced us to the word neoteny, which was helpful, <laughs> but then also explained that video games as a medium are not immature, game developers are. Um, which I'm sure we could talk about more <laughs> if we wanted to. Um, she's, I, I've described her in conversation as uh, a healthy dose of reality uh, in our industry and, and in our scholarship. And so um, she's a, a professor of journalism at the New School, and she's, she's here to share some thoughts with you. So um, Heather Chaplin. Hello. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for that very nice introduction. Um, yeah, I'm very happy to be here. Um, although, you know, I, I did warn Abe that I was a little nervous giving a talk in front of media studies people because I'm not a theorist. Uh, I'm a journalist. Uh, and the thing I always tell my students is one of the great things about being a journalist is you don't actually ever have to know anything. Um, you only have to know who to call. So I feel like this is a little bit of a weird dynamic because you guys are probably the people I would be calling to find things out, but yet here I am talking to you. So I thought probably what I would do is actually not talk for that long, and then we can have a conversation and you guys can shoot questions. Um, so I was trying to think you know, what, what I have to offer that, that might be of interest. And I was sort of thinking, it is, it's been an interesting time to be covering games. I started covering games uh, in 2001, and I got into it incredibly randomly. I was a business writer. I'd been doing a column for Salon, and I was working uh, at Fortune. And my agent called me one day, and he said, there's an editor out there who thinks that there's a book about something about video games. And you have to remember, this is 2001, right? So not only no Zynga, and no World of Warcraft, no Xbox. Um, I don't remember what the sales, the sales figures were already pretty impressive, but it, it just, the arts and leisure section of the Times did not cover it. It, it was nothing. Um, and when he called me, I thought, well, I have no interest in that. And then I remembered that my, my ex-husband, my husband at the time, had recently snuck a PlayStation 2 into the house. And he told me that it was for the DVD player, but then I noticed that he was playing all of these video games, and he was like a really, really smart guy. And he was in this very fancy um, philosophy of mind program at Rutgers, where like, you know, you had to be like a rocket scientist to get in, and whenever you'd go to their offices, they would all be playing Doom over the T1 lines. And so, the real thing that struck me is why are all of these like highly intelligent people doing this ridiculous thing that to me I would be like totally ashamed to, to touch it. Um, and then I started thinking about how when I was a kid I was raised by hippies and I had been taken to all of these alternative game festivals and you know that was like a thing in the 60s and 70s games that promoted cooperation instead of competition stuff like that. You guys probably know more of the history of that than I do. But one of the sayings that had struck with me all these years from going to these alternative game festivals was something that I think comes from anthropology, which was show me the games of your children and I'll show you the next hundred years. And this had stuck with me all my life. And I was sitting in my office in the Time Warner building and I suddenly thought, 
this is the most fascinating subject in the world and nobody's covering it. Like nobody is looking at this thing seriously and if we study these games, we might actually get a sense of what the future is gonna be like, right? Because games, that's the role that games play. That's how we train people to be the citizens we need them to be in the future in this fairly organic way. Um, so I suddenly just was like, this is the most exciting subject in the world. I, I have to get in on this. And it also was kind of like what I imagine covering like TV in the 30s would have been like, like just unknown territory. Like it's a new medium, nobody's done a ton of thinking about it, it's, it's kind of yours to, to explore. Um, and so I just jumped in and I went to E3 in uh, 2001, I guess that was, and some of the first people I met were, one of the first people I met was Sid Meier, uh, who was obviously very interesting to talk to. I met Will Wright, um, I met, um, well, over the course of the next year or two, I got to talk to Shigeru Miyamoto, Will Wright, uh, also people who were not so big at the time but have since become big, like Cliff Blazinski. Uh, I met Mizuguchi, who I was really into Space Channel 5 at the time, uh, and he invited me to a rave in the foot of Mount Fuji, which I was very excited about, although I never made it. Uh, and so, and Nolan Bushnell, you know, who was, is everybody here a games person? Can you raise your hand if you are? Okay. Okay, so, so far, like when I say these names, do people know what I'm talking about? Okay. Um, these are people who are very big in the, in the games world. Um, so, um, and I remember I went to the Xbox offices where they had not launched yet, and one of the big things that they kept saying is they wanted one day games to be considered the way movies were or um, books were, that they wanted, their, Seamus Blackley, the guy, one of the big evangelists for the Xbox, told me that he wanted, his mission in life was for video games to be in the arts and leisure section of the New York Times. And that just seemed like, okay, you know, whatever. At the time, in 2000, this was right, this was before September 11th, so it was, it was, must have been September, September 2000, September of 2011, um, right before that happened. And now, you know, they have two reporters I've written about games for that section. So what I'm trying to say is that I feel like I've been there watching the shift happen. I watched it flip into the mainstream. I've also gotten to see the rise of art games and indie games and serious games and games as kind of a hot academic discipline. Um, and so along the way, I've gotten to know a lot of interesting people and been exposed to a lot of interesting ideas. So I thought I could sort of touch on some of those and then again, maybe you guys can, can ask me more, more questions. Um, so the, the first thing that struck me was how fascinating the people were, right? Because back in 2001, everybody thought that video games were for stupid people and they were probably made by stupid people and that they were violent and that they were sort of bringing about the decay of moral civilization. And when I started researching that a little bit, it was very interesting to discover that like, you know, Socrates thought the written word was gonna be the end of, of moral society because he thought we would lose the oral tradition. And he was right, we did lose the oral tradition in a way, but we also got literature. So I got sort of interested in this idea that new media, there's always like fear and loathing of a new, of a new medium um, and that video games were that. And I always kept in mind this idea of what am I learning about the future? What are we preparing our kids for without actually really knowing it? And a couple of the things that, that hit me um, 
within that, this sounds really obvious, but I actually think it's something worth remembering, is that first and foremost, video games are preparing people to have relationships and experiences mediated through the computer, right? So it's really simple, but it's kind of big at the same time, right? Because a generation before, computers are still like, oh, what is this thing? But once you've played with it, once you've had explorations and made friends and all of the things that we now just assume and take for granted we're gonna do through a computer, that's kind of a big thing. The other thing is data management. Um, I mean, anybody who's looked at the um, screen of a contemporary video game, there is so much going on there that I, as a non-gamer, I really cannot play most contemporary, like, first-person shooter games where you're managing your, your health and your ammunition and your weapons and your potions. I mean, and you think about what the future might be like, well, that kind of makes sense as something that we might, we might be teaching. The other thing that I was really struck by is, again, when you look at a video game, if you're not a gamer, what you see is basically total chaos. And the gamer's ability to discern what's important amidst a sea of chaos, I thought, was, was really striking. And I also heard that echoed um, by people in the military, which I'll touch on later, too, because obviously there's this very tight relationship between the military and the video game industry. And every interview that I did with colonels in the Army and technology officers in the Army, and I spent a lot of time with this guy, Casey Colonel Wardinsky, who was the uh, America's Army, was his brainchild. Does everybody know America's Army? It's this massively multiplayer online game come recruiting tool. And that's what he said. He's like, the skills that gamers are learning are exactly the skills that, that modern soldiers need to have. It's that ability when everything's like a mess in front of you to know that, that's what I should be targeting, that's what I should target on. Fast decision making and uh, an understanding of cause and effect, right? If I jump on this mushroom, this thing will happen. So I'll come back to the things that I think games are fostering, but these were the sort of first big epiphanies that I had. And then also to touch on the military point again, I was really struck by the fact that a lot of games, commercial games, were actually teaching you skills like how to set up a kill zone or how to flush out a building, like actual real skills that the military trains people to use. I don't know how many of you have like looked into this subject, but you know, the relationship between the army and the industry is, is, is very, very tight. I was struck right away by how almost every um, game designer above a certain level had worked with the DOD or the CIA or the FBI and with no, like I would say, really, you're working with the CIA? Like, why, are you, how do you feel about that? And they'd be like, what? Like, it wasn't, you know, and I felt like in any other art form, artists would never want to be working with, with, with the military, right, or with spy agencies. But in the game industry, everybody's down with it. I mean, I'm sure there's some people who aren't, but I was really struck by this. And then when I spent a lot of time, I'm just going to go off on a tangent about the military for a second. So I spent, this got me interested, and I spent then a lot of time going over to the military side and hanging out with people in the Army and the offices above the Army, like the chief, this guy Michael Macedonia, who's the chief technological officer at the Army. And they were all talking about Ender's Game. Do you guys know that book? Okay. So to me, Ender's Game is like this terrifying story of how badly children can be manipulated, right? Well, in these army circles, they were all talking about this book incredibly excitedly. And 
I kept thinking, do you know that you're talking to a reporter? Like, are you sure you don't want to be more cautious in how you're saying this? But it was like they were so into it that they didn't even see that this might not be good publicity for themselves, right? They were talking about how Ender's Game was so great and it really showed you the potential of turning warfare into a game and how the use of children. Um, and so they basically were trying to figure out how to create an Ender's Game. And when you think about what war is gonna look like in the future, you can see that there's a lot of skills that the gamers have that are gonna be very handy. I also was really struck at a lot of the um, wares being sold by independent contractors to the army uh, of, you know, now we all know about drones and everything, but again, in 2001, 2002, this was still a little bit shocking stuff. I remember a guy telling me about his system and bragging about how it was designed to be just like a Nintendo system so that the transference of the kids coming into the army would just be seamless. They would just immediately know how to use these long distance warfare systems. And I again was just like, do you really wanna be just telling me this stuff? But it was just completely like, yeah, this is great. We, sh we should be doing this. So I was, that is something that I've just, I feel like I always have to talk about because I feel like it never really gets um, addressed in conversations about games, but I feel like it's so big. I mean, I have, I just have been communicating with the PR guy for Medal of Honor, and he's trying to get me to do a story on it for All Things Considered, and he keeps bragging about how great it is because it really was written by special ops guy, and it really is gonna show people all of these things that, that happens uh, that special ops do in war, and I'm just thinking, okay, well this is a game for our children, so what exactly are we sort of preparing people for? So a lot of times I get asked, like, are games good for you or bad for you, and I tend to just say, well, it kind of depends on what you want the future to be like. Um, but I definitely think that it's important to be thinking about um, the militarization of, of video games. I mean, there's a long history of wargaming. It's not like it's new, but is that to me, that seems much more something like Full Spectrum Warrior, which was released maybe eight years ago, that was released both to be an Xbox game and simultaneously with a very few modifications to be used as training for soldiers. Like that doesn't get any press, but everybody freaks out about Grand Theft Auto. So I feel like people are barking up the wrong tree when they're, when they're worried about this stuff. Um, so when I first, the other thing that I first started that struck me about video games, and my thinking has changed on this a little bit, was this idea that games were um, models. And so that it was a new way of learning. Um, and I thought of an orrery, right? So like if you want to tell somebody about the solar system, you could write a book that describes the planets and um, uses long description to explain something, or you could build an orrery. You know, we all made them in science lab, the, the little balls with the this, what are they called, the pipe cleaners or whatever. And there's another way to learn about the solar system where you can look from side to side and you can kind of poke and prod. And I remember thinking, wow, so if you're gonna, there are different mediums might be better or worse for um, teaching different things. And I'm gonna come back to that point because I'm also gonna try to touch on the work I'm doing in digital journalism now. And that idea has really stuck with me. Um, okay, I'm gonna cut forward. So that was sort of my beginning life with video games. So let's cut to, I don't know, 2007, 2008, and I am sick to death of video games. Uh, I never wanna see another video game. I hate the people, I hate the, the 
the stuff that's coming out. I just, I just want to vomit at the very, very thought of it. Um, two things happened around that time. One is the MacArthur Foundation started its digital media and learning initiative. And the other thing was, I don't know how many of you remember the scandal of Super Columbine role-playing game and the guerrilla game-making competition at Slamdance? Okay, so there's this game, this guy, um, well, I just blanked on his name, even though I can, I can see his Facebook picture in front of me. Um, Danny Ladone. He, um, by himself, using free software, created this game called Super, Super Columbine Massacre Role-Playing RPG, where you play as um, Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris, although sometimes I switch those names, and you go through the day, but it's in this weird Nintendo little thing. It's very disturbing. At the end, you're in hell, and it's like doom. Um, it got accepted into Slamdance Gorilla Filmmaking Competition, which I think was pretty much the only indie game-making competition going at the time. And then they got a lot of protest, and so the organizers of the conference um, kicked it out. And I heard about this because all of the other independent game designers who had games entered all banded together and pulled out. And I was like, I didn't know there was an indie game making scene. You know, here I am covering this thing and I didn't even know there was enough of a scene that everyone would band together and pull out. So I went out to um, see what was going on. I ended up doing a story about that for the New York Times that introduced me to just the whole concept of like, oh, we've now come full circle back from games being this thing that people make in their bedrooms to being this huge, you know, $20 million affair, and now the technology's gotten cheap enough so people are making them in their bedrooms again, and this community has built up of people who see games as a form of creative expression and maybe less of technological challenges. Um, and there's this whole thing happening. I met people like Jonathan Blow uh, and Chris Hecker and Kelly Santiago and people who now are you know, really important indie game makers. And, and that just excited me tremendously to see, like, there's something going on beyond the male power fantasy, you know, or the, the first-person shooter games. Uh, and then I got very interested in, does everyone know the MacArthur Digital Media and Learning Initiative? So MacArthur decided to give $50 million to people researching digital media and learning, as the title says. But where I got interested was really interesting stuff started to happen around using games for learning. And the whole question of what it means to be literate in the 21st century kind of seemed like it was up for grabs. And I found this really, really genuinely interesting. I got to know people. You might notice the theme here is, is the people. I'm not a technology person. I'm interested in people. Um, so now, so I told you the sort of the, the first people I got to know, and then the second. Now I got to know people. And if people don't know who people are, raise your hand and, and I'll explain. But I got to know people, first Connie Yao, who's the person at MacArthur giving out the money, uh, Eric Zimmerman, Katie Salen, Frank Lance, uh, Tracy Fullerton, you know, people who were thinking about games, <laughs> sorry, were thinking about games in a way that I had never experienced before. I didn't know that there was people out there who were sort of taking it as seriously and raising, raising these kinds of questions. I remember oh, also Jim G and Henry Jenkins, who you guys all obviously know. Um, I was incredibly struck by Jim G's book. And so I got very interested in what does it mean to be literate in the 21st century. And I remember I did a story about this for All Things Considered. And that's the great thing about being a journalist is that you might not actually know anything, but 
whenever you're curious, you kind of have an excuse to just get to call up people on the phone and have the most wonderful conversation. So I just remember like having this long conversation with Connie Yell and her explaining to me like the history of education and how the public education system had really at first been to train people to be ready to work in the factories with bells and learning to think in chunks of time, and which was an idea I hadn't really thought about before, and how she wanted to be building uh, moving learning into the idea where it was really literacy in the sense of being able to make meaning in the world and really be empowered in the world. And that this was going so far beyond reading and writing that it now involved things, I'm sure you guys all know this is now fairly commonly out, there's systems thinking, right? Which back when this was starting, like this was a really kind of, I know it's not a new idea, um, because actually in some ways it's basically Buddhism, but we'll get to that later. But using games as a, realizing that games were a way of teaching systems thinking was one of the most interesting ideas like I had ever heard. Um, are people familiar with the idea of systems thinking? Bored to death with it already? Okay. Because it's funny because you know usually I talk to people who don't know anything about this so they're like oh my god what is that? But you guys I'm figuring it's the interconnection of things blah blah. Okay. Um, so I was around when like Game Star Mechanic got off the ground. That was Jim G and Eric Zimmerman, and then it got translated to Katie. I did a couple stories about Quest to Learn. Do people know Quest to Learn? Quest to Learn is a school that MacArthur helped funded. It's a public school in New York. It's now opening a second school in Chicago. It's Katie Salen's brainchild, and it takes the idea of uh, it tries to make it takes. It's basically to me, it's like a, a video game that's spilled out of the computer. So when you go to the classrooms. Uh, tests are boss levels, right? And everything that you do in the classroom is done in the context of playing, right? Because it takes this most basic lay lesson that play is how primates learn, right? And so uh, everything in the school is that you're playing with these ideas and they focus on things like, um, well, like they'll use, they use game design as a way of fostering things like systems thinking and understanding cause and effect. Um, and really it's almost sort of like when you're um, playing a game, you're kind of engaged, I think of it as like really in sort of a scientific process, right? Because it's, it's hypothesis. Well, what will happen if I do this? Well, let me try that. Huh, that didn't work. Let me try this other thing. Okay, well now when I do that, it does this other thing, which is really this incredibly great way of thinking about the world. Um, and her classrooms are incredibly dynamic and now that's totally taken off. Um, so that was very exciting. Um, and I started to get to know um, uh, Eric Zimmerman very well. Does everybody know his work? Okay. So Eric and I did a, did a talk at the, um, uh, what is it, Games Learning and Society Conference at Wisconsin. Uh, called the Ludic Century. And this became an idea that Eric and I actually spent a year working on a book proposal that was so terrible that we just dropped it. Um, and I still can't figure out why it was so terrible, because I think it was really good ideas and we're both somewhat interesting people, but it, anyway, it came out terribly. But the good, the upside was I spent a year talking with Eric about um, this idea of the ludic century or the, the age of play is what we came to think of it as why video games now and what are gaming literacies? What are things that people learn through games that are going to make them literate in the world? And I, became, I began to see the book as really being about oppression and freedom. Um, Eric defines 
play, I just texted him to remind me of his exact definition, but it's the free movement within a more rigid structure, right? That's him and Katie Salen's definition from the, the rules of play. And I just thought that was so interesting, right? So we're living in this globalized world, right? Where we're increasingly surrounded by artificial intelligence systems that most people have absolutely no idea how they work. We have no idea how the things that we place our trust in, that we're, that we're allowing to mediate our relationships, it's how we bank, it's how we play, it's how we meet our husbands and wives. We have absolutely no idea how these things work. And probably as we live in an increasingly globalized world, the need for more systems to sort of control our behavior and things like the financial crisis, right, which was to me a failure of an understanding of how systems work, um, our ability to be able to play as defined by that movement with the free mo human movement within a rigid system is actually kind of going to be key to being free. Um, in the 21st century. And we started to think of the book as being a survival guide for the 21st century. Um, so those ideas have stuck with me as being, as being very, very interesting, although I've dropped doing the book because uh, that was very, very boring. Um, I kind of feel like I've been talking for a while, so I want to end quickly. Um, the two other quick points that I guess I would make is that, just throw it out there and then you guys can respond back. Um, I'm kind of back to a point where I'm really sick of games again. Um, I feel like the conversations that I have with people about games and game philosophy and the systems thinking and literacies are breathtakingly interesting. But I, I don't find any games that I see interesting. So I feel like there's all of these incredibly smart people like yourselves who are now, and now it's culturally acceptable to devote your life to game theory and studying games. And I feel somehow that the, the thinking is way beyond what we're seeing in practice. Um, I look at the indie game space. I'm not that thrilled by anything. I find the art game space like, uh, you know, Serious games, we were just talking about this. It's you know still this very annoying thing of people trying to stick their cause on top of a game, and it's, it's very rarely any good. Um, so that's something. I don't know what. Maybe I'm just burnt out. But I'm, I, I don't see anything that great. And I continue to be alarmed at the fair that comes out of the mainstream game industry. You know, you mentioned this rant I gave, and we were just talking beforehand, that I'm, I've always been sort of amazed at what longevity that has. Because as a reporter, you don't speak your mind that often. And as somebody who'd been studying games for a lot of years, mostly what I met with is, come on, why are you taking this seriously? It's all a bunch of crap. All the people who play it are juvenile delinquents. They're all going to be stupid. So I felt like I spent a lot of my time explaining why games were OK and explaining why games were interesting. And the thing that led to that rant, and I still feel now, is just being sick of being up there defending something that I think is, for the most part, pretty crappy. Um, I really don't see people taking advantage of the new technology, the new paradigms of games, the possibilities to do anything worthy of the respect that everybody wants to get. Um, 
And I do also feel like I want to say something about the violence issue, because that's something that I've just been asked about like 75 million times. And what I usually respond with is, you know, look, I've talked to people in the military, right? These guys would know if there was a correlation between people playing video games and the desire to do something violent, right? There aren't studies that show that. But this is what I've come to think, and I'd be curious what you guys who actually research this stuff would think. I do believe that, so one point to remember about video games is that I always remind people is video games are not violent, right? Football is violent, rugby is violent. Video games trade in images of violence. And I no longer doubt that constant exposure to the kinds of video games that people play are, making, are gonna make people comfortable with images of violence. So do I think that someone plays, is gonna play a video game is gonna then go out and be more likely to stab somebody? No, I think that your average first person shooter player, if he has a crime happen to him or a friend on the street is gonna be as freaked out as anybody. But when you think about that we're preparing these people for the future and you think about the kind of warfare that we're likely to be in, this sort of constant asymmetrical war that we're talking about, I think we are preparing a generation to be completely comfortable with images of people being killed. And I worry about that. So I've never really said that out before because I always feel like I don't want to be like Jack Thompson. I don't want to be one of these family right-wing groups who says, oh, they're bad. But like, I think that's a problem. And I think the game industry doesn't really, it's so used to being defensive that it just refuses to acknowledge any things that maybe really are a problem. Um, and I sort of feel like, you know, people always ask me to talk about like the role of being a games journalist and I'm, I've never really known what to say about that because I feel like most games journalists are kind of e uh, um, evangelists for games, right? They're game fans and they really want other people to be fans and they really want to make a point about why games are cool. And it's not like I'm, I'm not anti-game by any stretch, but I sort of have always felt like it was more my job to keep the games industry honest. Um, and so I wish there was more of that, that there was more people saying, you guys are sucking here, you know, you guys are doing good here, we need to see more of this. Um, so I don't know, so I just wanted to kind of say that about the violence thing. Um, just scrolling through to see if I had any other, oh, do people want to stop and talk now, or is anyone interested in hearing me talk about journalism? Because, <laughs> so I'll say this, and then, and then I'll, I really will stop. Um, so I'm sick of games. But what, the things that I have learned through studying games for the last 10 years inform everything that I do. So I'm now a professor at the New School Teaching Journalism, and I'm building a journalism program that I hope will actually produce people prepared to do journalism in the 21st century. It's a collaboration between the Liberal Arts College and Parsons. Like even that comes out of my experience with games. I understand what the importance of good design in a way that I never did before. Um, and I'm, we were talking about this a little bit beforehand too. I'm really interested in the idea of play. That continues to be really, really interesting to me. And when I think about some of the, there's a lot of problems journalism faces right now. I'm happy to talk more about that if you guys want. But like, one of the things is that we're inundated with data, right? Everybody knows that. That's the big paradigm shift. There's too much information out there. It's no longer about finding the fact. It's about what do you do with this overload of facts. And I feel like there's an unexplored area in journalism 
in help in presenting information to people in a way that they can play with it and be able to get information from the data that they wouldn't be able to if it was just presented in a static manner. So like we were talking before about Ian Bogust, I really like Ian Bogust, he's both a friend and I respect his work, but I, I don't totally think he's going the right way with his idea about news games. I think it's something looser, that there's something that we haven't figured out yet about playing with information that could be very vital to the future of news. So I hope, do people know Colleen Macklin? She's a really, really talented game designer and really good thinker at Parsons. I'm gonna be working with her to kind of explore this idea a little bit more. Um, so I guess I would wrap it up there and suggest that people shoot questions or challenge me on things or tell me things that I didn't know or that I can tell you things you don't know. Um, if there was anything of use or of interest in that. Yeah. Um, so first I'd say I agree strongly with the, oh, So first I would say. It's on. It is? Oh, okay. Uh, so first I would say that I agree with the major thrust of the military industrial complex being related to the games industry and how that pushes out and uh, affects the types of games that are created. Um, but I would, I guess, as a potentially optimistic view on it, instead of taking the view of show me the games your children play and I'll show you the next 100 years of your culture, uh, I think there is a case to be made that it's show me the games your children play and I will show you the past 100 years of your culture. Huh. Um, the idea that, you know, the idea of how many of the war games and shooting games we play are based on the type of warfare that were prevalent during, like, Vietnam, during World War II and World War I, as opposed to the fact that we don't have, like, Medal of Drone Pilot as a major seller right now, and that it's kind of like a, a vestige of a culture that's on its way out as opposed to indoctrination for culture that's coming up ahead of it. Um, so again, the, the idea that you do have that distance from your target and everything else makes it so that things like remote warfare are obviously much easier for someone to get into. But the idea that you know, uh, playing a game where you're using a World War II rifle to shoot a bunch of other World War II soldiers is more looking backwards than it is priming for going forwards. And maybe that's a positive thing as opposed to a negative? I don't, I don't know. I'd be curious what other people think. I mean, my instant reaction is that I would challenge you on that because just getting inundated with PR requests from these companies, the thing they brag about is this new game was the, the military action was created by guys who just got back and it's exactly realistic. It's exactly what happens. I mean, the last Medal of Honor, they got in trouble, right, because you could play the Taliban. I mean, it took place in Afghanistan. And I feel like the new trend, I don't even know how new it is, but in, in military games is to be based on actual combat experiences from actual recent wars that have that are happening. So I guess like as a response to that, back yeah. to the full spectrum warrior point, yeah, yeah. which was this horrible boondoggle of creating something that was absolutely not useful for training yeah. because there were no interiors to navigate. There was no actual simulation of urban warfare. It yeah. was just walk around streets and shoot people who are marked on your HUD. Um, like games can make those claims in their PR stuff all they want, but mm. there's no game that actually reflects Mm. what warfare is like, and especially well, not modern. And I would agree with that, and I would say that with the America's Army people, this was my big complaint with them, because, again, this guy Casey Wardinsky, 
I really liked him, like the guy who was doing it. He was, he was not, like he said to me, I think the Army's a noble profession. I didn't invent war. We're always going to have to fight it. I just want people to know what it's like. We no longer have World War II vets sitting around. This is our way of saying what the war is like. And my point to them was, you cannot tell me that in this video game, the moral responsibility of killing another human being is in this game, right? So it's not telling you what it's like. So in that, I totally agree with you, and I think that's one of the reasons these games are so insidious. Because it's the glamorization of war. I have a, a, I'll have a question later, but I just wanted to mention something about World War II, which is that <laughs> uh, I just interviewed my grandfather about his experience in World War II, and he says any media in which you can A, see Germans, and B, mm. kill them is not anything like World War II. That's interesting, yeah. He, he remembered hiding in a foxhole and shooting guns in the air and then running away. Yeah. And that was a few years of that, and then he came home, and that, that was World War II to him. Well, I think, I mean, I think that really does speak to, and maybe I didn't articulate it well enough before, is I do think one of the things that's so insidious, it's a, it's a glamorization. It's, I mean, if war is not a fun thing, <laughs> right? And these, these games try to make it so. Please. This is a wonderful conversation. I enjoyed your talk very much. Thank you. But just on this point, one thing that's helpful to remember is that uh, when, the country, when the United States is at war, the popular media always do this. Yes. I mean, it was, forget yes. about video games. Think about the movies in World yes. War II. And that's a very powerful uh, partial explanation for some of this, I think, and links it up to the idea that it's connected to the, uh, to, to the corporate uh, industrial complex that drives the society. Although, do you think, I, 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 can I ask you a question back? So I think about that sometimes. You know how in World War II, you know, they made all these sort of propaganda movies that talked about how great America was and everything. They weren't fighting movies so much, right? It was more, or maybe I don't there know as well. There, but there were fighting movies, very, at uh -huh. the time, very vivid ones. Okay. Tremendously vivid ones, a whole, whole series of them. Okay. They were also propaganda. Because my they were sense is they were, yeah, my, my, and again, I, I don't know. That's why I'm honestly asking. My sense was they were more ideological propaganda as opposed to like but, but being. No, they, were, they were in, you know, immense uh -huh. numbers of, it's a subgenre, uh -huh. a subgenre of, of 40s movies. Yeah. Is the war movie. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the basic tropes of it are, are still alive in things like Private Ride. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, There's I'll, another thing to think about, it seems to me, when you were talking about how vivid it is. Think about the vividness of some of the most recent uh, uh, global war movies. And it seems to me, again, video games. Well, which is right. where Private Ryan, I mean, the original Medal of Honor game is basically an adaptation of, say, Private Ryan. It was produced by Spielberg. Which also then leads to the interesting point that, you know, game theorists will talk about <laughs> how actually playing a game is less immersive than watching a movie. Have you guys heard yes. about this idea? You, you, right, and, and this is, I think, a big misunderstanding among the public. And I did a story about this for All Things Considered, looking at that Medal of Honor with the Taliban game and sort of explain, who is it that says when a dog bites another dog, it both signifies a bite and the opposite of a bite? You're the academics, you should know this. <laughs> anyway, it's this wonder, I love that line, right? Because it says so much about play. No, 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 it's, 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 it's a play guy. I can't remember who it is, but I love, what? No, I don't think so. Maybe. I wouldn't know. Um, but it's this wonderful line that I think really gives us a glimpse into the psychology of play and I think gets to this big misunderstanding that, yes, Saving Private Ryan might be much more 
intense in some ways, because when you're playing, you know that you play. There's always that level that you're aware that you're engaged with the system of the game. As a side note, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't want to repeat, I, although I think that the real problem with games is that games produced uh, by the mainstream uh, system are like Hollywood films. They reflect the worst in our culture. Mm -hmm. I don't think that they cause it. But I also think that there's interesting things. To, uh, one thing you might want to look at, um, the people involved in the Occupy movement, and particularly the people who've done the most um, effective street theater, hmm. think of it as play. And they talk about it that way. Um, and I think it'd be, a, and they're all people who grew up playing games. And I th uh, they, grew up, they grew up in the ludic century. So I think it'd be a very interesting line of uh, inquiry to sort of find out how play is, is working um, in that realm. I totally agree. And if Eric and I ever pick up our book again, that was a big thing that, th I mean, and that's something that, you know, he is more of an evangelist than me. And that's what he'll say exactly, is that we're preparing people to play. And, you know, again, who says that play is an inherently subversive act? It's another g game academic whose name I can't put my hand on. But, you know? No, I don't. Oh, I saw a hand go up. But anyway, so I, I love this idea of play that's not juvenile, transformative play. Um, see, I told you I'd mentioned that. Um, yeah. So I want to pick up on, on journalism again, and um, a couple of references here to you know whether whether games represent the past of a culture rather than a future, or whether it's going back to the film movement, back to the early days of the film industry in terms of the the mainstream game uh, business. Um, I know for sure in a small market like the Netherlands, a small language market, that the games industry has really done much what the cinema industry in America did back in the period 1978-9, where basically the industry called the shots for, mo for many of the reviewers. They send people on junkets if they write the right kind of story. They're blackballed if they don't write the right kind of story. There was a huge amount of interference. And basically what passes for journalism in some, in some outlets are thinly veiled overwrites of, of press releases, of, of press kits. Um, okay, standard practice in the film industry, we know that. Clearly games have a more variegated terrain in terms of reviews. Blog, the blog, bloggers are out there, passionate gamers talking about what they've experienced. Journalists like you for the New York Times doing, doing you know, proper reporting. What's your, I mean, do you have a reading of the overall field? Do you have a sense that that's still, is, is that on the wane or is that still the norm? Is this just a matter of different kinds of venues? How, how do you see that? It's a good question and I don't have as good an answer as I should, um, which is mostly because I haven't been paying as much attention as I used to. Um, my sense is that, again, that the vast majority of games journalism, this is going to sound horrible, but I wouldn't really call it journalism, you know? Um, there's, there's two reasons I would say that. One is I feel like it's done as, as product review. Um, so it's like, it'll, it discusses, and this is changing a little bit, but it discusses it like you would a product, software, not as a cultural thing. Um, and again, there's this, it's, it's so insidery. Like I'm still struck by as much as games have come into the mainstream, how few people are writing about games for a mainstream audience. It still has that very like, you're an intent, it's, it's like hardcore gamers, right? Whereas we now know that games have spread out way beyond that. Um, 
I feel like the focus of like the websites and the journalists are really talking to each other. Um, and I don't feel like there's much of that. Again, you know, I feel like journalism, you know, journalism is part of the checks and balance systems, right, of a democracy. So it's like, and I, you know, when I'm teaching, I try to tell my students that that is the case even if you're doing a restaurant review or a movie review. You know, it's about keeping people honest. And I just feel like I don't see that much of it. And I'm not saying I've done a great job of it either, but I don't, I don't think there's enough of that at all um, in the games industry. Hi. Um, so I just wanted to segue with a question about this new games journalism because you've identified yourself as a non-gamer and there's this movement which on the one hand is claiming that we need better games journalism to highlight the human aspects of playing but they are still identifying themselves as players, mo most of them like hardcore gamers I would say. Uh, what do you think about this approach, and, and you know, do you think that this is a way to keep journalism honest? As you would you Wh say, which approach? The, the new games journalism, uh, that the, the kind of review, yeah, like the reviews where where the the writer is part of of the review itself, for example, or is talking about their own reflections, kind of harking back to the to the new journalism in the sixties. That's funny. Um, I have mixed feelings, I guess, but kind of for reasons of my own. <laughs> uh, like, I am not crazy about new journalism always. That idea of putting the journalist in the center of the story always makes me vaguely uncomfortable. Um, and I, in my own work, tend to not be part of it. Um, which is why, like today, I'm here saying my opinions, but I wouldn't, I don't, re wouldn't really do that in my work. So I have a personal, just like, oh, it's not for me. That like, oh, it's all about me and this experience that I had. And let me tell you about it, filtered through me. It's just not my preference or my style. I think it's probably good in the sense that it moves away from reviewing games as pieces of software. I'm sorry, that's not a very satisfactory answer, but. <laughs> <laughs> Take that war. Um, so you're kind of living my dream, actually. One of my career goals was to get uh, a certificate program in games journalism started in whatever, wherever I ended up landing. Um, although my background is only a little bit in journalism. But I guess, thinking back to what William was talking about, I have to wonder how much of this uh, kind of, it's all insiders talking to each other, um, is down to, uh, and really this is, Clara, something's trying, she's trying to address in her own professional work is uh, we don't have the vocabulary to talk about it, to talk about games yet as non-players, right? Mm -hmm. Where if you take something like film or books or TV or music, even, you know, there is there's an obvious difference between the language of the trained critic or the experienced critic and the lay person, right? But even the lay person can listen to a song and go, I like that or mm -hmm. I don't like that. Mm -hmm. And here are the things about it that I like or don't like, right? Whereas I think somebody who's never played a video game before, and you're like, here, play Halo, and then they go, right? Like, they can't they have, even move the, they don't even yeah. They don't even know the language of the controller or, or the language of, of how the game is trying to engage them, right? So just 
in a broad way, like again, because I don't want to put you too much in the spot, but how, you know, how can we break that divide, mm. right? Like how can we, how can we start to, to give non-players an ability to talk about these experiences in a meaningful way mm. without having to give them like an intensive five hour training course on how to navigate the Xbox 360 menu right. first, right? I mean, okay, so now we're just talking like journalism. Okay. Um, I think that a strategy to do that is to find out what's interesting about the game on a larger level than just playing it, if that makes sense. Like, I'm trying to think of the stories I've done. Um, okay, so like, I did a story on Braid, right? So that was really a story, you didn't need to know how to play the game to find it interesting, right? Journalism works generally when you have really good characters. Um, so I would say that often going through the people is the way to get at what's interesting about something. Um, or, for example, I did a story on uh, the Medal of Honor game where you could play as the Taliban, but my story was really about the psychology of play. Like, one thing you learn in journalism is, like, there's a difference between an idea and a story, right? So, like, if you want to write about video games or you want to write about Medal of Honor, you need to find your window in, right? This is just journalism talk now like you need to it's just part of the craft is you you figure out well how am I going to tell this story what's the angle in so for me the angle into talking about Medal of Honor was the psychology of play because that to me is interesting and it was sort of my take on the game that nobody else was going to be doing and it allows me to leapfrog well you play as this and you I mean you have to have some description um, or uh, when I did a story, and most of these were for all things considered, radio is a great medium for uh, writing about games because they're both time mediums. Um, Grand Theft Auto 4, my angle was uh, the Grand Theft Auto series as American satire, right? So you have to find a way in. This is what I'm always telling my students. You can't just write about the thing, right? It's what's your angle, what's your hook, what's your, what's your door into the story. Is that? Yeah, I still have my back. Sorry. Uh, so it kind of seems like the, the, the trick, at least as how you just expressed it, is less to talk about the literal game, right, as it is to talk about kind of the context of play. It, the other thing journalists always think about is who are, you, who are you talking to, right? So if you're writing for Crispy Gamer or Kotaku or, you know, a, or one of the game sites, you can say, oh, and there's this part where there's this new defense system and your audience might be really interested in it, but I work for all things considered. My audience doesn't care about a new defense system. They want to hear about what's interesting about the game. Does that make sense? Like on a deeper level. So I would, and, and again, I think games are interesting as cultural artifacts. Um, I'm not a technology person, so I'm not interested. I know Cliffy's game, um, uh, yeah, God, I'm really like in Alzheimer's here. Uh, Gears of War, everyone was crazy about the, you know, the ducking system. And like, I just, I don't care. Like that just doesn't move me at all. I'm interested in why is this game hit resonating with people. Um, so. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a bit back to the war thing sure. and then come back to journalism. So I think that the biggest problem that I see with war video games is not, you know, that people get violence, but the problem is whatever you do with the war video game is related to war no matter what. So even if you dislike it. 
So the only thing you can play with a war video game is war, and you cannot not play war. And that's the biggest problem I see, that there are millions of people that are really related at home with that topic. And I wish it would be a different topic, but you know, maybe I'm a pacifist and an idiot, I don't know. But the other thing is, way more interesting, I think the, the whole conversation about war video games is pretty boring right now, I think, because like the, the psychologists, I think, got it all wrong. And I think um, you know, the ones that are defending it are getting it wrong. And uh, so I'm thinking more, what are the, the spots that we can look at that nobody looks at that gives us a different view? And I think, for instance, Iranian um, war video games are interesting because, you know, like, if they do a video game and they attack the Americans, everyone's like, oh my God, you know, like, this is pretty much an attack against us. If Americans do that in every game, they take all the other countries and it's completely fine. And I find, I find like their notion of, you know, if they do it, it's kind of like, how can they do that? You know, that, that should be forbidden. And um, so I'm, I'm more interested in looking at, at different approaches to war video games and seeing how it, sho it shocks us culturally. And um, I think, so I think there is, it's a, quite a big treasure in that sense, more, more from a cultural perspective. Um, and coming back to journalism <laughs> is my gap, I think. I think that journalists should look at that stuff, you know, look at the stuff that normal gamers don't look at. Um, totally. The problem is gamers love to hear what they're already interested in. Um, and I think that's so... It's the same know. with any group. But this is why, like, when I started writing about games in 2001, I remember saying to the editor, I think I'm the right person to do this because... <laughs> I don't care, it's not that I don't care, but I don't have an agenda, like it's fresh eyes. And I often tell my journalism students, there's, you know, there's a great tradition, you know, there's, there's two schools in journalism. There's, because politics has the same problems in, that games reporters have, right? They're all writing for each other, it's all insider baseball. The rest of us are like, what the fuck are you talking about? Just tell us what the issues are. It's the same thing. So I'm a big advocate of the way, like the New Yorker model, which is generalists. Right? They'll send somebody who's never covered something before to cover it because you see things with fresh eyes that you just don't see when you're immersed in it. And I actually feel like I am not as, I don't have the fresh eyes anymore, mostly because I've gotten to be friends with the people. That's, that's the real problem, is that it's hard for me to cover things or talk about things because I know people personally now, which is like a whole other thing. But um, I don't remember why I said that, something about the, the fresh eyes. Going for and, new and, perspectives. Yeah, and, and the other thing, oh yeah, the new perspectives. And the, the other thing that, you know, w w with, with the war games is, you know, there's a long history of war games. Like somebody, maybe it was Ken Work, uh, who um, was my colleague at the New School, I think, was sort of saying that, that the earliest games are training people for war, right? War has always been a part of society. I mean, chess is a war game. Um, and games before that. So I'm not really, I don't want to be like wringing my hands saying, oh, this is new and terrible. I just think it's something we should be aware of. The games they play in Homer are war games. But then, so that's again, when people say, are they good or bad? I say, well, what kind of future do you want to live in? I mean, do you want, if we want to be in an incredibly militarized society, it makes sense, but if we want to move away from that, maybe we should look at what we're teaching. Um, so as a, as a journalist, how do you imagine the mainstream? Uh, and like when you're thinking, like this is my audience, um, like is all things considered the mainstream to you or is that a <laughs> section of the mainstream? And uh, how has that, because like when you were talking about, you know, 10 years ago, everybody, you were saying everybody would say, I mean, who's mm. everybody? 
Yeah, that's a and, good question. And, um, and who is everybody now? It's a great question. I mean, and probably I should stop saying that because, I mean, I think what we're, you know, this is not going to be news to anybody, but, you know, what the internet has done is this incredible fragmentation, so there isn't really a mainstream anymore. Although, All Things Considered has 12 million listeners, which is a big chunk of people. Um, I know that NPR has a reputation for being, you know, very lefty. I actually don't think that's totally true. The demographics show it's a pretty big swath of, it's kind of a lot of people just listen to it all the time. So I tend to think, and its numbers are actually growing, interestingly. Um, so I feel like that's an incredibly complicated question you just asked, um, that I'm not sure how to jump in. Um, because, you know, we now have this phenomena where with the internet, people just focus on the thing they're interested in, sort of, every, so we have a million echo chambers all around, and you don't really have to engage with anything else because it's not like everybody sits down with one news anchor or an option of three news anchors at night. You just focus on your own specialty. So this problem that we're talking about with games, I think, is going to become a bigger problem for more and more subjects in more and more areas. Um, what was your exact question? <laughs> Sorry, what, what was the exact question? What is the mainstream? I, I don't, I mean, I think the question is, in your perception, right, yeah. and I understand that um, it is a perception, which, because we're only human, but, uh, you know, I, actually, I do have a sense of what the mainstream is, so do you, right? Uh -huh. And as a journalist, uh, your concept of what the mainstream is has a certain amount of power, right? Because you get to make decisions about what kinds of stories you cover in what way, right? Uh -huh. To this kind of, uh, to this mainstream, however it's constructed. And, um, you know, I find that, I find that interesting. And I'm, I'm wondering, and so in your perception, um, I, if you have a perception of the kind of mainstream that is not quite ready for games, hmm. right? They were, it seems like what you're saying is that they were less ready 10 years ago they're more ready now, but, but they're still not interested in, in a lot of the stuff that, that the kind of gaming culture is really immersed in. And I'm wondering, is, is a, so in your perception, like how has this mainstream, j just the way you understand it, how has it changed? Um, and where, I guess, how much more would it, would it have to change or how much farther would video game culture have to meet it, right, kind of halfway, mm. in order for these two things to, f to feel less disconnected. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, except I have like seven different thoughts. Um, it is a complicated question. Okay, so the first thing I'm thinking, and just pull me back if I'm not actually answering your question. The first thing I'm thinking is that what do we mean when we say gamer, right? Because like now with casual gaming and social gaming, everybody plays games and now the stats say that it's women between like 40 and 60 are the main casual gamers. So I feel like when we talk about gamers, we tend to use the word, but we actually mean hardcore gamers. I think it's very hard to get real numbers on these things. I would be very curious like how many, I mean we can find out like how many, you know, 16 million people bought, you know, Gears of War, Medal of Honor, whatever, but like, I don't feel like I have a good sense of like how much that number has really changed. The like, you know, the guy who plays, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm not being very articulate. So there's this other phenomena that we talk about games as if it was this big monolith, right? When really there's so many different kinds of games and so many different kinds of gamers. 
so I almost feel like I don't know how to answer this because I feel like when we talk about the mainstream, are we talking about the 40-year-old who plays Farmville for a few minutes every day, or are we talking about the, the let's, he's probably still 23 and playing Medal of Honor. You know, the game industry did this big push to try to convince everybody that it wasn't a young man thing to play games because that was bad for their image. And I just was never sure how much I bought that. You know, there was a lot of stuff coming out, like when I first got in, like, no, no, the average gamer's 35. And I was just like, where are you, you know, numbers always lie. Like, never believe statistics. You know, they just, they can be manipulated in so many ways. My sense has always been the hardcore gamers still young guys. But, but you still make decisions about what your audience, what you think your audience wants to hear, right? Mm -hmm. the story. So who is that audience in your mind? Okay. I guess for me personally, I'm not saying this is what all game journalists should do. Oh, for me personally, I'm interested in people who think they wouldn't be interested in games. But, but I also think <laughs> that some of this is just patience, that, you know, okay, so I'm, I'm 40. Most people I knew, I, we were a little old for Nintendo. So we were playing Odyssey and uh, Atari when we were little and then maybe came back in to Xbox, um, excuse me, to PlayStation 2 or Xbox as adults. The generation below me grew up on Nintendo. They never, there was never a break. Gaming has just been a part of their life forever and I think they're gonna want adult fare as they get older. So I think that some of this, we are, we are gonna reach a point where just everybody plays games. I think that gaming is probably the right medium for this age for a lot of complicated reasons that we probably don't have time to, to get into. But the whole idea of the ludic century or the age of play, I really, I kind of believe that, the, you know, this idea that the novel was the right medium for that time and the moving image was sort of the right medium for the 20th century and that games, because games are systems, instead of linear or narrative, I think it is the right medium for this age. So we're going to see people, I think there's a reason that there's something dynamic about games that people are so interested in. I think it, it speaks to us because the system of a game, you know, the set of interconnected parts and this refocus of understanding that it's not the parts themselves but the relationships between the parts. I think this is a worldview that is coming out of game studies, interestingly, but makes games, even if it's only on a subconscious level, very interesting to people. So until we get there, <laughs> Heather, um, I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you for some advice. Sure. So I'm a game study scholar, and I get calls all the time from the press, so I'm asking you about your profession. And it can be very difficult, and I try careful phrasing, making sure I don't say things that can be cut into pieces, whatever. I try to counter the games are a waste of time, games are going to hurt kids. They already have the story written, yeah. and they're just looking for me to say the quote, that's gonna fit the narrative, which is usually a narrative for which I do not agree. <laughs> and I want to provide a nuanced critique because um, like you have looked at Warren uh, video games a lot and it's, that's a there's a nuanced, very interesting, deep critique there. It's not just that the games are bad. So until we're at that place where everyone sees games as mainstream, I want to contribute to getting us there. But when I speak to the press, it's very frustrating. And you may not write that way, and I've listened to you on NPR. I don't feel like you cover the industry that way, so thank you. But how can I, as an academic, 
help with that nuanced approach when journalists approach me? Good luck. <laughs> I mean, look, journalists mostly work very fast. They do build the narrative. They, I mean, this is something I'm, you know, look, even when, when you pitch a story, they want, an editor wants to know that you have the story beforehand. And I'm always like, well, how do I know what the story is? I haven't reported it yet. So this is like a major tension that just exists in journalism. I think the best reporting is when you go out there and go, I, I have no idea. You cast a wide net, you see what you find, you report on it. But the reality is that is a luxury. That is something that I get to do because I work for All Things Considered, where I have a very intelligent editor who wants a more nuanced point of view, and I also spend a lot of time on those tiny little pieces. And it, I do not get paid enough to make it worth my time. That is a labor of love. If I was working for a newspaper, I would have six hours to write a story. I would have to decide what the story was first because I simply would not have time to cast a wide net. I would have some people to call. You're, when you're a journalist, you're not supposed to say anything yourself, so you're looking for other people to speak for you. So you want to make the point that games uh, do X. You can't just say it unless you're in Britain, then you can just say it. But in America, it's a known thing that you have to, you have, that's what, that's what you call, you get, you're getting your quotes, right? Which I hate that language, right? Because it's not, I'm looking to talk to somebody. It's like, I need a quote. I need someone to say this. I need someone to say this. You call them up. You get it. You wait until they say something that'll work. You plug it in. I mean, that's just, that is, the, that is how the system is set up. Have you designed a game that's about that? <laughs> no, but that's a good idea. I think that would be a great idea to teach systems thinking about journalism. Anyway, sorry. No, that is interesting. And, and, you know, I really try to teach my students to not be like that. But I also know the reality is, especially because the speed at which journalism moves is getting so fast now that now six hours is luxurious. You're supposed to get a blog post up you know, in 20 minutes or an hour and a half. You're not, you're not even calling the game academic anymore. So I guess, having said that, um, I would say don't try to be nuanced. Reporters hate nuanced, most reporters, especially newspaper reporters, because it just moves so fast and it's all determined by inches. You, you don't have enough space in a newspaper story to get at nuance. Um, and most reporters, you know, they're not always that bright. Um, um, it's not, they don't have to know anything. I always joke, you know, media, it's for all these overeducated people with no skills and no real intellect, right? So it's like the perfect thing to go into if you had an expensive education and you can write, but you don't really know anything and you don't really like to think about anything too deeply. Um, God, I shouldn't say things like that. <laughs> Don't podcast this. <laughs> it's true, though. I mean, anyway, forget I said that. Um, I would, my, my, pr <laughs> my practical advice would be think of some very short, punchy things to say. People like... Um, don't try to be nuanced. Try to think of some declarative sentences and frame them in a punchy way and have them prepared and say them fast. I mean, I'm sorry, but that's the best way. Think about what your message is, boil it down to a sentence, and say it over and over and over again. And I'm really sorry that that's my advice. And then, and, or work with people who are doing long, I mean, there's only six journalists left who are doing it, but long form, 
you know, magazine pieces where they, you know, spend three months, then they'll come and spend an after. I mean, that was the great thing about writing my book is I spent, you know, four years. I, you know, I did a chapter on Will Wright and, you know, I spent probably a total of a month of my life with the guy, you know, like just really talking about this and about that and, and really getting at the nuance, but that is a luxury. I have a question. Um, so you were responding to Todd uh, a little bit, and, and I picked up on something that you said, which was about characters. Um, and it actually made me think about your book, Smart Bomb, because one of my favorite parts is early in the book um, where you're talking about Cliff Blazinski and specifically painting a portrait of uh, at these events in Las Vegas of, of Cliff Blazinski and Cliffy B, right? These kind of identities. And, and, and it, what I think it did nicely was it was it wasn't talking about you know, a video game. It wasn't about Gears of War as such. It wasn't about the Xbox as such. It was about this, you know, soup out of which this, you know, this cultural soup out of which, you know, these things are emerging. And I'm wondering if, you know, in that time, you know, since then, um, where we, as you said, we have the explosion of, of tools making it accessible for, you know, so many people to make so many different types of games. There's all of these now, not only sub-genres of mainstream games, but, you know, sub-communities of game developers. As a journalist, has it, I mean, do you, is it, <laughs> has it become harder to find these, these kind of characters, right? I mean, mm. Cliffy B was like this character, yeah, right? True. And now it's, you know, do you, do you try to just find that one auteur who made this one indie game hmm. in Denmark that, you know, or has that changed? That's, that's a great question. Um, again, I feel like I was really lucky at my timing because Okay, like Will Wright, he's really famous, right? Everybody like knows who Will Wright is. I met Will Wright because I was sitting at GDC eating lunch out of one of those plastic boxes and Will Wright came walking along with his plastic box and I said, oh, are you Will Wright? And he said, well, yes. I said, will you, will you come and sit down with me? He said, sure. And he came and sat down and we ate tuna fish sandwiches and we talked about whether artificial intelligence will end up taking over, which he thought probably it would and that that would be an argument for why human intelligence wasn't so great from an evolutionary standpoint, which was like the most interesting conversation I'd had in like a decade. And we ate our tuna fish sandwiches and I said, can I come and hang out with you? And he said, sure, and he gave me his phone number and it went off from there. I don't think that would happen now. I notice it now, like getting, I saw him recently at a talk and I couldn't even get physically to him whether or not he would have been happy to see me or not, I'm not I don't even know because I couldn't get to him. Cliffy, I, Cliffy was not famous when I met him. He was sort of, he had done Unreal Tournament um, and I actually was considering a number of different people for the role he plays in the book. There was a lot of young guys kind of maybe we're going to move to the next level or not. And I just really liked Cliffy. He just, he, 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 We've had our differences over the years, but he, um, he stopped talking to me because I called him scrawny in the New York Times. Um, although if you noticed, he's gotten really buff, which I think might be because of me. Um, uh, yeah, uh, anyway. Um, yeah, so when I first came in, I just showed up and you could talk to anybody GDC was about half the, I mean, this wasn't even the beginning of GDC when it was eight people in the living room, but it was still, what is it now? Now it's probably like 20,000 people or something, right? You know, it, it, it just, you could just go up to people because they weren't, they weren't stars yet. 
the mainstream wasn't paying any attention and they were flattered and excited that somebody from outside of their world was interested in coming in. I think, I mean, we haven't even talked about being a woman in the gaming industry, which is like a whole nother conversation, but I think being a woman helped in that people remembered me because there weren't, I would look around the room and I would be the only woman for like five miles. Um, so I think that helped. But yes, I think it would be I think it would be much harder to get the kind of access that I got. And then, you know, once you get it, you build on it. I also had a really lucky break, which is that the guy who used to run GDC, I ran into him and it turned out he was somebody I'd gone to college with. So that's like the kind of break as a journalist that you're just like, yes, because then that meant he let me into all the fancy parties that I would like to pretend I was such a good journalist I would have gotten into, but I'm sure it was just because Alan said I could come and then people see you at the parties and they're like, oh, she's okay, and then it kind of builds from there. Um, yeah, I don't, I, don't I, I, think, I think I was very lucky, for sure. So, what, he was first? Thank you, Sonny. So, uh, I have a good one, I think. So, you know, you, when you talk about it, you talk a bit, like you know about the good old times you know like <laughs> 10 years ago um and what what strikes me is even the people you talk about i think they also might look back and go like oh the good old times when we were like in the game so and and to point it out will right i think he lost it I, I like he's like the like the um george lucas or something of of, mm. of video no no because he he still got the spirit of being like the inventor in that field but if you look at his new project i'm like you know, and, and you talked when you mentioned, do I still have the fresh eyes, you know uh, um, I, I wonder what you think about the people mm. you you know, explored 10 years ago and seeing them now. Except if, this if is being podcast so I'm not going to make any comments <laughs> No comments? <laughs> no, but maybe no comments is a comment, so <laughs> What's the question? Um, no, no, so what do you think about when you, you know, you reached some of these people really on the top of their on, of the ball game, and um, and they might not be anymore, um, even if they have not realized it yet. So I was wondering what you think about these people now. You know, let's say Will Wright. Do you have the sense that Will Wright is 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 you know still really on the edge of 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 doing really interesting games? You can say no comment. It's fine. I think I'll refrain from commenting. Okay, I got that. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. So. One thing that I'm a bit concerned about whenever I hear um, sort of prescriptions about what sorts of games should and shouldn't be made, and especially I think War Games is a very salient example, and you're far from the only person to say maybe we should take a look at, at what's going on here and why we're putting out so much of this similar content. Um, the issue is that I think it discounts the ability for gamers to play critically, and this is something that I see across the board a lot, that um, you know, if I, speaking as a gamer who is I consider myself politically a, a pacifist, ph philosophically a pacifist. I happen to love war games and first-person shooters, and I think it's very possible for me to, uh, in a video game, shoot a, a, an innocent in the head and do so without buying into the, the morality that says that that's an okay act or an insignificant act or a morally neutral act. Um, so to the extent that, that you would say you know, that, that uh, these games are desensitizing people to violence uh, or, to or images of violence. war, images of violence, that's right. Um, and I think that's a valuable distinction to make, so thanks for making that one. Um, 
it just seems that that by taking away this sort of game, you're also taking away the ability for players to engage with that material critically. Um, and I think, you know, given that that the uh, the popular journalism has basically abdicated their role of covering wars over this last decade of war, I think the case could be made that video games as a medium have given us the the most prolonged, sensitive, considered cultural response to this decade of war that we've actually had from from any popular hmm. medium. Um, so, so really, I guess the the point that I would make is just that it, it seems like maybe a bit of self-preservation, um, or I mean, at best, maybe self-flattery on the part of games journalists or games critics to think that it's the role of the player to passively. Uh, uh, take in the object that's handed to them, and it's the job of the games journalist to engage critically with that content. Mm. Um, so how, how would you sort of, is there a room for us to acknowledge critical play and resistant readings and mm. uh, maybe see the game itself as being a less static text? And also, I, I mean, my question is, isn't it early in the game as for a medium this young to start saying that uh, certain realms of representation should not, you know, be, be left aside and shouldn't really be on the table anymore for future use? Well, first of all, I'm not, I'm not saying we shouldn't have these kinds of games. That should, I'm not interested in making that kind of statement. I'm saying we should pay attention to what kind of games are making, what kind, and not just games. I think we should pay attention. Look, I feel weird making any statements about media in a room full of media scholars. Um, my sense is that, I'll, I'll come back to this. I, I'll try. Pull me back if I don't. My sense is that there's been this like left-wing, right-wing split where like the right-wing is like media should be controlled, it's really dangerous, and the left-wing is like, no, it's all fine, it's all fine. And my sense is just it's so much more nuanced than that. That when I just think about my own personal experiences, I feel like I've been so incredibly affected by the media that I've been exposed to. Like, you know, even just talking about like gender stuff, right? like images of you know, beautiful, thin women that I've seen since I was a kid, I know has created my entire sense of what it means to be a woman. I just, I know this. Um, I also have noticed uh, I meditate, and I'm always amazed at that whatever media I've been consuming, whether it's a book or something that I would say is a work of art, like The Wire or a piece of trash, it's in my mind. I mean, it's what comes up over and over and over. So I just, I don't buy this view that like it's all fine. Now, I don't have an answer for that. I'm not into censorship or even, and I enjoy the first person shooters too. I don't know why, but it's really fun to kill people in video games. Um, so what am I trying to say? I guess I'm trying to say that I, A, I'm not suggesting that we don't have those kinds of games. I'm saying that we should be honest with ourselves about what we're putting out there, whether it's games or TV or movies or whatever, and that I think it's time to move forward to a much more honest, nuanced perspective of um, the effects of media. I hate that phrase, the effects of media, because I don't mean like we're a bunch of you know, blank slates in the media is doing these terrible things to us. I get it. I've read Henry Jenkins. I understand it's like, you know, a two-way street. But I do feel like popular culture has replaced, you know, religion and home life and all the stuff that I'm sure you guys actually know about and study. But like, we have to pay attention. These are the stories of our society. They're the glue that hold us together. And so I think we need to pay attention to what those stories are, what stories we're telling each other and what stories we're engaging with. Does that sort of 
address what you said? Yeah, sort of. Uh, can you <laughs> talk a little bit more about sort of the idea of, of critical play and, and interactivity and, and how, uh, you know, w whether or not by performing an action within a game you're complicit with the motivation that the character you're controlling wow. has for performing that action or whether, you know, you can, you can examine that action by performing it in a critical and reflective way. That might be a little out of my league, but I will, I will tell you um, my thoughts that come to my mind. Um, I have always been struck by how much fun it is to do terrible things in video games. Um, I loved the Grand Theft Auto series. I noticed this really interesting phenomenon that when I would sit next to somebody else playing Grand Theft Auto, I would be horrified and offended by what was happening. And then the minute I had the controller in my hand, I would just be laughing hysterically and having so much fun, even though I think it is a intellectually offensive, especially the, the one that's set in LA gangs, where you're just like, you know what? It's not funny, don't, don't go there. When I'm actually playing, it's funny. So that led me into looking into the psychology of play and this thing that happens that, again, I'm out of my league here, but the th this thing that happens where you are, where it's the bite thing, it's the opposite of what you're doing and that you're always conscious that you're playing. And I think, I, th I would love to s research that more because uh, I think it's really profound and I think it explains a lot. And I think it explains a lot also of why people who aren't gamers themselves hate video games so much. Because when you watch somebody playing, it's like being in a room with a zombie, right? Because they're sitting there and they're completely focused on this thing and their mouth is hanging open and you're watching this like grotesque or offensive or violent thing going on and it's just a completely different experience than playing it. Have any of you had, I mean, literally, like I'll hand over the controller and my perception of the game changes completely. I take the controller, I'm having another experience. So is that what you mean? I guess maybe I don't know what you mean exactly by playing critically, but yes, I think that it's very possible in video games to do behavior that of course is horrible or you wouldn't want to do in real life and it's fine. Is that sort of, okay. <laughs> Uh, this is halfway in response to your comment and halfway a question for you, so bear with me. Yeah. But uh, it seems like kind of the message that, that I got a bit out of your presentation and which maybe is a response to kind of what you were talking about is not so much that we need, not so much that we need to cut games about war out of our, out of our cultural lexicon, but that, and I'm glad that you brought up women and body image because it's kind of the same principle, right? It's not that images of sexy women in the media are necessarily by themselves the problem, and it's not that we can't engage those pictures in a non-top-down way, it's that they're the only option mm. in a lot of places. Mm -hmm. I, it, that's kind of how I felt like you were talking about war games, mm -hmm. uh, and correct me if I'm off base, but it's like, when so much of the market is dominated by games about war, it becomes the dominant narrative of the consumptive practice to begin with, right? When non-gamers hear about video games, they don't think about Pac-Man. Mm -hmm. They think about Call of Duty. They think about, you know, they think about games about war because they are such the pervasive notion. And I think you can't, well, you know, I would be the first person to tell you that players can absolutely play something and have a negotiated response to it, right? Like, I'm all about the British cultural studies. But on the <laughs> other hand, even if you go back to Hall, Hall is like, there's a, there's the possibility of a dominant code, right? Like there's, you have to engage things with context on both sides. And I think it's perfectly reasonable, 
am I completely off base from how you think? <laughs> that was the question for you part of the question. Um, I, 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 I don't really have a yes or no. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you just some of my, just in react, some of what formed my dislike of these military games, again, even though I can enjoy playing them, is like, I just remember, you know, if you open video game magazines, the army of one thing falls out, right? Like, when you talk to these army people, they're going after gamers. Like, this is not, there's something grotesque going on. And it's not that it's not okay to occasionally enjoy playing a first-person shooter. It's that there's a real relationship between the video game industry and the military that goes unspoken that really freaks me out and that I think that people should pay attention to. I remember covering, you know, for a while, competitive first-person shooting games was all the rage. I don't know if people remember that. I remember going to these tournaments and there'd be recruiters there. You know, like it's just, there's something, there's a relationship that I feel like we pretend doesn't exist and I think we should pay attention to it. I think you said twice that like it's a, okay. I think you mentioned twice that it's the responsibility of games journalists to kind of keep the industry honest. And um, I guess I was kind of wondering if you'd talk a little bit about what you see the role of games journalists in um, and their relationship to both the industry and their responsibilities to the industry and to gamers and to the public in general. Um, I'm not sure I totally understand the question. Uh, so I guess like, more specifically, like what exactly should journal, like what exactly what does it look like? Supposed to be doing to keep the industry honest, but also like, I mean, any other specific roles that they have in the production around games? Um, well, so you mean like, what, what do I mean when I say keep them honest? Yeah, I mean, it, it's clearly not like reprinting press releases. Like right. that's not what games journalism is, but like what does it mean in that case? Well, I guess it's, um, a couple different things. I mean, I guess, one, I, I'm sort of talking just about the role of the journalist, no matter what they're covering, so that I apply it to games journalism, too. I guess my, my thinking behind making that comment is that I was, I was really struck by how much feedback I got from this. I did, I did this talk at GDC a couple years ago where I said some very I guess fairly harsh things, but it was in the context of a rant at GDC, and I just was really, really struck at the amount of negative feedback that I got from the industry, whereas I really felt like, kind of like I'm doing them a favor, right? Like I'm telling you what I see, like you should be, you should be glad to hear that. I mean, it was supposed to be funny. Um, so when I say keep them honest, I guess I mean it's, you know, it's like I always picture, it's like you should hold, a, as a journalist, you're supposed to hold a mirror up to people so that they can see things as they really are, not a fantasy of what they want to be, right? So it's like in the games industry, there's this big fantasy of how they want to be taken seriously and respected like other art forms. Well, hold up a mirror, look at what you're actually producing. This is why you're not getting taken seriously as an art form. It's not, it's not even like a judgment thing, it's just reality. So I guess I'm very into reality. <laughs> Um, and I think that that's what, I guess that's kind of what I mean when I say keep them honest is, 
you know, if a game sucks, you need to say that it sucks. You know, if if you feel that there's too much of, um, you know, it's like talking. It's 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 not just going along with everything. I'm, I'm not, I guess I'm not totally sure. Is that kind of answering your question or? Huh. Okay. Um, great. Yes. Yes. Although I'm, you know, I noticed Apple was finally starting to get some coverage about its labor practices and. It's it's all those things. And again, you know, I do not claim that I'm like some living embodiment of this. Um, I. I think it's all those things. I think it's being as, you know, it's, it's being as honest as possible. I mean, journalism is all about trying to be true. I mean, not that all art forms aren't about trying to be true, but it's, it's, so yeah, I mean, to paint, like how do you paint a real picture? Well, if I was teaching a class on journalism, I would tell them, you know, you have to talk to the people who make the game, you have to talk to people who play the game, you have to talk to the expert opinion, hopefully get something nuanced. It's, you know, you, you arrive at truth as the way journalists define it by talking to a lot of people. So that, if, you're, if you mean like that specific technique wise, it's like, yeah, you, you would want to talk to as many different people as possible and look at it from as many different angles as possible. <coughs> I think that's the way you kind of try to get at something that's true. I feel like I'm not really answering your question, but. <laughs> So I, I have a question that might move things in a slightly different direction, but I, it's, it's come up a little bit, and I'm curious to bring you back to it. Um, so you, you talked at the end of your remarks about, um, well, you said a few things. You said that it, you know, you're feeling bored with games again, that it seems like things are sort of moving into a less interesting phase, but also that there are these possibilities of games that maybe aren't being explored. And um, so my question is essentially asking you to talk a little bit about what those possibilities are, but let me explain that a little bit because that could be a very open, annoying question. Um, you know, okay, so this is a new medium, and you know, I guess if you're talking about the lifespan of, of you know, if we're thinking about games as you know the scene that you've been part of, then you know maybe this is a scene that's getting a little old. But in terms of the history of a new medium, it's it's you know this is still a period of innovation and there must be some things that are suggesting these possibilities to you. So I guess maybe it's a two-part question of, you know, I guess I'm, I'm pushing back to say, well, there must be, you know, what are those things that make you think that there are possibilities? What are those things that, that still suggest that this is a period of innovation and, and it's a new medium? Um, and then, you know, I guess I'm asking you to speculate from there. Okay, so the way that war games are being created isn't the, the right direction, maybe, but, but where else could we go? Maybe somewhere completely different. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I still am inspired. It, it's hard to talk about because, like a lot of people, and probably a lot of you in here, I sort of cringe when I hear the term serious game. Um, but I am still. Like, who's that, Constantine? Who did, who did I just meet, the visiting scholar? Oh, Scott and Sawyer? No, not oh, Ben Sawyer. Yeah, like, within two minutes, I was like, ah. And he was talking about, like, making gamification meaningful by looking at library science and the way that, like, librarians match books up with people um, and, 
So trying to do a more like individualized use of game mechanics, but making sure that when the game mechanics are removed, people are still engaged with the topic. And like my brain just went, <laughs> you know, like there's, there's, we have just begun to scratch the surface, I think, of um, the importance of play, not in a frivolous, childlike, well, there's something childlike about it, but you know what I mean, in, in a more transformative way. And games as a way of, as being like conduits for meaningful experience. I hate the jargon of that, but if you sort of know what I mean, I feel like there's a huge, huge, I feel like we're just at the beginning of that. I mean, I would make the distinction games are not new. Games have been around for thousands of years. Uh, it's video games that are new. And even that, I'm, I'm getting a little sick of hearing about it being new because when was Space War? Was, was 50 years, right? So like, we're not new anymore. And that's another reason I was so annoyed with the game industry is it's like, you can no longer hide behind this we're a new medium thing. Um, so I guess I see the most interesting world, the, the most interesting stuff I see happening is coming out of game academics of these days. I really do. Like when I go somewhere and I'm talking, you know, I'm in New York, so NYU has its game center. So those are the people I'm going to be running into. Jesper Yule, Frank Lance, uh, Greg Kostikian is still around uh, to be grouchy at everybody. Um, you know, Zimmerman, who I worked with, Colleen Macklin, you know, uh, you know, the, the, the work that these people are doing, the thinking about games, I just find completely, completely fascinating. I guess what I mean is I feel like the games themselves haven't quite caught up with the potential that everybody sees. And maybe that's just, you know, natural. Does that, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, I mean, I guess just to follow on that point real quickly, um, and I think you had mentioned something that you had been experiencing recently that you thought was really a uh, valuable experience because it existed in the moment, and then you mentioned there was oh. no profit model mm. for that. Mm. And then to hear you talk about, like, this ties in the academics are having some of the most interesting ideas because they don't necessarily have to come up with something yeah. that can be monetized that it's well. True. And also why we keep saying it's a new medium because we keep having new and higher levels of technical fidelity that you have to support and budget and fund before you can actually put the game into it. So yeah, I think that, that okay. those things come together very tightly. That's a good reminder. That reminds me of something I saw recently that I liked. I have found that what interests me the most is no longer video games, but games outside of the computer. Um, I'm interested in, I've, the, the, what we were talking about earlier was a game um, that Eric Zimmerman and his girlfriend uh, Natalie did for MoMA that was called Starry Heavens. I don't know if people, it, it, um, it was a very simple game, it had these beautiful helium balloons, um, white helium balloons, and then these mats on the floor of different colors, and you basically had to work your way to the middle and get hold of one of the balloons. And I was saying, I don't know why it was such a good game, but there was like the most wonderful spirit kind of in the air around it. Like it was MoMA, you know, so it's all these like fancy schmance, arty people. But people were just getting goofy. People wouldn't stop playing. People would come and stand around and be really interested. It had very low barrier to entry. So like I'm not a good gamer. I could just step in and play. Um, 
people didn't want to leave once they'd started playing. You got to know the other people that you were playing with. And it only existed for that night. And I, f I feel like I'm seeing more of these sort of inferior games, these games that only exist in the moment in time. And I find that very interesting, because it reminds me, I'm very interested in dance, and it reminds me of, you know, dancers always talk about that, you know, dance only exists in the moment that it's happening. And I think that there's something to think about in terms of games for that, this idea that the game play, it, it's so, it, it only exists at that second. It's not something that can be nailed down. And I think there's something really beautiful about that. And I have found myself thinking about that. The other thing that I've found myself thinking about is I feel like something really interesting is happening in New York. Um, and I would, like if I were to do a story on this, because I haven't really done any stories on games lately, I would want to look at the New York scene. I feel like there's some really, really interesting people and that it's kind of distinct from what I see in LA or in Austin or in other parts of the country. So I think that's something that I just remembered <laughs> that I have found interesting lately. That might be a good place to end, actually. Um, so, uh, Heather Chaplin, everyone, yay. Thank you. <laughs> There's